I am a bifurcated person. Um, many of you have other names I'm sure you'd prefer to use, but bifurcated <laughs> means that I have both a southern and a northern heritage. Um, relatives from both sides of the Mason-Dixon line, and I'm of a certain age that I lived through a number of events in the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s that sort of predisposed me to think that I would never see this day, that it would never come during my lifetime, but it did. And we are here today to talk about what were the factors that led to this particular result in this election at this time in our history. And we have um, three speakers uh, who are eminently able to address that issue. Our first speaker is going to be David Nitkin, um, a Washington reporter um, for the Baltimore Sun. David has also been a State House reporter here in, in Maryland. He was the uh, State Bureau Chief. He has a long uh, and stellar uh, record of high quality political reporting. Um, second speaker will be Tyson King Meadows, Assistant Professor in the Department of Political Science at UMBC. And finally, Tom Schaller, Associate Professor of Political Science at UMBC. Tom, the proud author of the book that apparently um, Obama did not read, um, <laughs> called Whist Whistling Past Dixie. And I'm sure Tom will talk about that a little bit. So without further ado, I will turn it over to our speakers. I've asked them to speak for 10 minutes, give or take, so that we can have plenty of time um, for Q&A after, um, after, their, after their talk. So let me first give it to David uh, Nitkin. We're, we're using two microphones, so this is going to be a little bit cumbersome, but it'll work. <clears throat> Just put that in your pocket or on your belt. Here. There you go. Thanks, Dave. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, it, it's uh, terrific to be here. Um, my, uh, my remarks will be a little bit more uh, uh, off the cuff. Um, uh, I'll let the, uh, the academic folks uh, give their, their more detailed presentations, but I'm happy to take uh, a lot of questions uh, afterwards. Uh, I've, been, I've spent some time uh, on the campaign trail uh, this year uh, from the primaries in many states. I was in New Hampshire, uh, Indiana, Delaware, uh, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Virginia, a few other states. I was able to go to both of the conventions. Um, when I came back from the conventions, I uh, went, uh, uh, because of newspapers and the condition they were in, we're downsizing a little bit and shifting around our staff. I went into a uh, political editing role, which was uh, fun and interesting for about the last uh, month uh, leading up to, to this election. Um, I, I, too, like Dawn expressed, was, was um, surprised at the outcome and um, and here's why uh, coming coming out of the conventions um, the two candidates were were fairly close uh, in the polls and what happened I think the defining feature of this election when we look back will be the economic collapse and the crisis of, that is facing the country this year uh, Gallup the Gallup polling organization for the first time did daily tracking polls, released daily tracking polls, which was a three-day moving average, uh, or a three-day compendium, uh, going for uh, many weeks, uh, if not months. Uh, I don't know the exact date they started, but we, but we have the tracking polls going back a, a very long period of time. 
And what you see is in about the third week of September, the, the, the lines for Obama and McCain that had been very close widened and stayed wide from about third week in September until the election. Uh, one of the uh, really interesting uh, phenomenons, I think, was that polling, because there was so much of it and such a high level of interest in this campaign, proved to be fairly accurate and much more accurate than we saw in exit polls in 2004, in other poll national polling and other, other presidential elections. I think people who were, there was, the interest was so high that polling outfits stepped up their game, figured out how to model, tried to take into to account the new uh, technology of people switching to cell phones, not relying on landlines. The reason I was wrong in what I thought, having spent time in places like West Virginia, Indiana, Pennsylvania, a few other states, uh, in my heart, I thought there would be a Bradley effect in this election. Uh, and, and when I was making predictions, and really I should stop making predictions, and I think a lot of journalists should probably stop making predictions, but when peop people want to know who do you think is going to win and why do you think they're going to win, and I really thought after having talked to hundreds of voters, heard what was in their hearts and minds, talking to Hillary supporters on the campaign trail, talking to voters who weren't sure which way they were going to go, that really there was, uh, there was going to be a resistance to voting for a mixed race candidate and that the polls weren't quite capturing that. Um, I think what we see now, a day or two after the election, is that in fact hundreds of thousands of voters told pollsters the truth that they were inclined to vote for the Democratic candidate, for a multiracial candidate, um, and that they were looking beyond race. I think there's a variety of factors for that. I think number one is younger voters, although I think we're still crunching the numbers to see if they really turned out in the numbers that, peop that, that the way we thought they were going to turn out. Um, it looks from the early numbers I've seen, but I haven't quite uh, looked um, uh, as closely as I want to into it, that, that the young vote was, was not quite as big as, as Barack Obama was hoping it would be. But that said, I think as the, as, as the electorate, as new people come into the electorate, I think they're less bound by attitudes and, tr and traditions that their parents held. Um, and number two, I'll get back to my first point, I think it's clear from exit polls that the economy was the defining issue in this election. And the economy, as we all know, was never an issue that was a strength for John McCain. He famously acknowledged that it was not something he was interested in. He uh, said he should have been paying more attention to it. And I think when you get back to that tipping point, which really was, I think we'll look back and say, that third week in September, when the Congress was putting together their bailout plan, John McCain many times in this campaign went for broke. And one of the days he went for broke was when he said, I'm suspending my campaign. I want to delay or postpone the first debate. And I want to come back to Washington and help fix the economic crisis. I mean, in hindsight, the way he responded to that moment versus the way Barack Obama responded to that moment 
was a critical point in this race. The debate happened. John McCain did not appear to anyone, I don't think, to play a major role in helping Congress either pass or shape a, a, a bailout plan. And after the first debate, remember, going into the debates, Barack Obama, while considered a terrific orator, was not considered a particularly effective debater. He had several not stellar debate performances in the primaries against Hillary Clinton. But as a result of that debate and then the two subsequent ones, he looked presidential, he looked unflappable, he looked serious. So an image formed of a man who was ready to be president, who could be president, and who offered a chance to take the country in a different direction than it was heading now. And when you look at exit polls, uh, we, we have the, uh, the Maryland exit polls, and I'll go, I'll go into some more detail in question and answer. We're in a state where eight out of 10 voters say George Bush is not doing a good job, where a similar proportion say the country is seriously off on the wrong track, and where three out of four say Barack Obama has the capabilities and experience uh, to lead the country on those issues. And as it turns out, Maryland while a strong state for Barack Obama is not that much of an outlier. There's a pretty interesting map on the front page of the, of the special election section in today's New York Times that shows the, the trends of counties throughout the country. And the, it's colored blue for counties that voted more Democratic in, this, in 2008 compared to 2004. Um, and there's a little bit of red for a, a swing of counties in Kentucky, Tennessee, sort of a crescent that's just south of, of Appalachia and heading into, um, yeah, now this, this, this is counties. And then and th this is a map that shows how the counties won. The New York Times map is, is actually a comparison of 2004 to 2008. So showing, showing a, a, a trending uh, demographic, uh, a, a trending democratic vote. Um, all of Maryland's counties were, were more blue this time around, but it, it, that was true virtually everywhere in the, in the country. I don't know that there's, at the same time, I, the voters are not saying they're more liberal and necessarily. They, most voters consider themselves to be moderate or middle of the road. So I think when we look back, what, what we'll see really is the economy was the defining feature. Barack Obama showed a steady hand, people wanted to vote for change, they liked what he represented, and the campaign was also, in my view, nearly flawlessly executed. Now, winning, in hindsight, winning campaigns always look brilliant, and losing campaigns look like they're in shambles. And, and John McCain even made that point uh, today in, in one of the articles uh, in, in the media. Uh, but the, the, the missteps by Barack Obama were really few and far between, and in my view, not of his own making. I mean, you can, you can go back and count the missteps on one hand. The, uh, the comment uh, calling Pennsylvania voters uh, bitter and saying they were clinging to guns and religion, that was made as an aside at a fundraiser in California and captured on videotape by a Huffington Post journalist. It was not something that he said in a debate or a public forum. Uh, the, uh, the, 
the Reverend Wright controversy was not really of his own making. I mean, he's a member of that church, but it was the media that, that aired those videos um, and, and forced him to respond to that. And uh, I think the other comment that got a little traction at the end was the, uh, was the uh, spread the wealth comment that he made to, to Joe the plumber at, in, the, in the closing weeks of the campaign. But he seemed to recover from, from all of those pretty nicely. You might even add in the sort of like calling Hillary Clinton likable enough. But I, I think th th that was in, that was in uh, an early New Hampshire primary debate. But really, if you think about someone who announced for the candidate, announced his candidacy in February 2007, had countless hours in the public arena, subjected himself to, to thousands of interviews, for someone to stay on message, the discipline of, of, of this campaign is about change, it's about hope. He was not going to get sucked into to the partisan divide. I, uh, and, and the amount of money that was raised, you know, upwards of uh, $600 million, close to $700 million, all points to an incredibly well-executed campaign. Um, so you have to give a lot of credit to him. However, I go back and say people, people voted their, people, I think, in Kentucky and Indiana, they voted their pocketbooks they, uh, well, I, I shouldn't say Kentucky, Indiana, Ohio, Florida, uh, the, the, the Bush states that, uh, that Obama won voted their pocketbooks, were brought to the polls by a superior organizational effort, were, were, were witness to and subjected to advertising that this campaign could afford uh, to, uh, uh, to put out there. And, um, and that's what got us to where we are today. So as we know, the analysis now is all, you know, can he fulfill these expectations and how can he govern? We'll see that in the, in the, in the weeks and months ahead. But um, I guess I'll end there. I'll turn it over to, the, to my more, uh, I'll, I'm just a warm-up act for my more uh, esteemed, uh, the esteemed UMBC uh, colleagues here. But, so I'm more interested to hear what they have to say. I'll stop talking now and I'm happy to answer any of your questions, particularly about media coverage. We, we, that's a subject we can get into, media coverage of this election and, and how you think uh, newspapers did, other forms of media. That's something I'm particularly happy to talk about in our question and answer session. So thank you. I'm the equipment guy. How are we doing? All right, well, here's my take on uh, the election. I have plenty to say, but I'm going to uh, narrow it for, for brevity's sake. Um, I think Senator Obama presented a rhetorical framework uh, about collective engagement and collective responsibility, which resonated with people. Uh, in the yes, we can, it's accepting, it's collective, and it's affirmative that we can do this together. And his organizational output allowed that to happen. He had a very massive ground game. And that massive ground game allowed three things to happen. One, massive early voter turnout. There were 31 million early votes cast in Georgia, for example. There were two million early votes cast. Uh, in Florida, four million. Colorado, uh, 1.7, four million in California, one million in Michigan, and 2.6 million in North Carolina. 
Now, unfortunately, we don't know all the demographics of those individuals, but if you look at the Georgia data, it suggests that African Americans uh, were heavily participating in early voting. Second, national turnout by certain demographic segments were higher than expected, and the split was important. So just looking at 2004 and 2008, in rural areas, Obama outed, uh, bested Kerry by five points, so 40% to 40% to 45. Men plus four, women plus five, 18 to 29 year olds uh, plus 12, and I'll wait for the circle data to tell us who exactly those individuals were. First time voters plus six, whites plus three, but then I'm gonna talk about the splits in particular states. Hispanics plus 14, sort of put to bed this notion that the Republicans have Hispanics in their pocketbook. And non-high school uh, graduates plus 13 over Kerry, all Protestants plus five, white evangelicals plus three, white Protestants plus two, 50,000 uh, or more income group plus uh, six, Republicans plus three, which is important. Uh, that he went into the Republican coalition and that's why he campaigned in many states. I too was in the Denver convention and some individuals argued that the 50 state strategy was a waste of resources and now they're gonna have to take that back. <laughs> Independence uh, plus three. And so I'm still going through the numbers, but the white vote in certain areas were very important. In Iowa, 51% of the white vote. In Indiana, 45% of the white vote. In Illinois, 51% in the white vote. In Michigan, 51% of the white vote. And 63% of the whites who were 18 to 29 years old. Okay, in Mississippi, that bastion of liberalism, he got 11% 11, 11 of the white vote and 4% of the white Republican vote. Uh, Tom will talk a little bit more about the uh, regional splits, but I want to talk about Ohio uh, for a second. In Clinton Democrats, Obama got the 81 to 18 percent split. So there were some uh, Clinton Democrats who were saying they wouldn't vote for Obama, but uh, he didn't get all of them, but he got 81 percent of them. White Republicans, he got 8 percent. Uh, that's pretty good. I mean, it's a 92 split for McCain, but still pretty good. In Ohio, when the question was asked, is race an important factor for the candidates? For those who said yes, he got 52% to 47%. In Ohio, 51%, uh, uh, Kerry only got 47%. The young vote, Kerry got 56%, Obama got 61%. And in Ohio, Obama got 46% of the white vote. So those things are important. We don't have the Hispanic data yet, but those things are important to suggest how Obama reached out to these individuals by arguing to look beyond race. And I do have something to say about the sort of Bradley effect. I think it's being overblown statistically if you look at sort of what the gap is between what they actually get at the end of the, the night and what the polls say. So, you know, when you look over time, the, the Bradley effect is diminished. That's number one. Number two, Obama had the credibility of not running like a racialized candidate, even though people tried to racialize him. He didn't run as a racialized candidate, so he didn't have the sort of baggage when he did, when he ran against Bobby Rush, because remember, he lost uh, to Bobby Rush, because the argument was he can't understand us, he's not one of us. But so when you don't have that racialized baggage, it's easier to articulate a larger message. And he also distanced himself from Jesse Jackson. I hope we'll get to that uh, as well. Secondly, I want to talk about uh, controversies over registration fraud. I don't think the acorning of black politics just didn't work. 
It, it, it simply just didn't work. To suggest that these individuals were engaging in voter fraud, voter fraud and registration fraud are two different things. But people sort of conflated them to argue that Mickey Mouse would be voting. I don't know if anyone had a driver's license that said Mickey Mouse, but uh, that's not possible. On October, October 29, Acorn released his first ever 30-second video to sort of uh, go against these things that were on the internet and John McCain's comments that this would be sort of the end to democracy. The Advancement Project also made sure that individuals understood where they would vote. And I served as an election judge. And that's important because there were many people who just didn't know where to go. And both campaigns seem to put it out there, you dial particular numbers to find out exactly where you go. Okay, and this whole discussion about provisional ballots, whether they would count, whether they wouldn't count, those are important things to, to, to talk about. Lastly, the discourse about race, gender, and generation. I think when he articulated what Reverend Wright has spoken about in terms of the generation of the civil rights movement, the generation of Jim Crow, and those arguments, I think he articulated to the nation something that they did not really get during Martin Luther King, Jr. That we're all in this together. And secondly, that it's going to take a generation of individuals who look beyond where they are phenotypically and think about where they are economically. And I think those are the things that resonated with people. And then uh, I'll talk some more about the uh, James T. Harris and uh, the Maryland Obama commercial, if you've seen it, it was uh, with Reverend Wright, uh, Obama's too radical, hate, 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 hate. I think those were an attempt to sort of uh, visually lynch uh, Obama and sort of to put this assassination, this political assassination out there of Obama, but it just didn't work because I think people looked beyond the messages and actually looked at the substance of the characters. And I'll stop there. Tom, you're up. afternoon. It's uh, two tough acts to follow. We'll see what I can do here. Um, let me make a couple of general observations about what I saw on Tuesday. Yeah, I think the first thing uh, uh, I thought about was how the world looks at the election. I, I traveled quite a bit this year, and if you read my column in the Sun on Tuesday, uh, the countries I visited on behalf of the State Department to talk about American politics and the presidential elections uh, were a a diverse little quartet, Egypt, uh, South Africa, Saudi Arabia, and Brazil. And I can tell you that there, and also talking to State Department officials uh, working there, who had, of course, moved around quite a bit on you know, usually two-year assignments and had lived in all parts of the globe and still communicate with friends back in other countries they lived in, as well as a variety of people I met while traveling from other than those four countries, uh, that most of the world uh, was rooting for Obama, and international polls uh, showed that by about a seven to one margin, people were rooting for Obama. And that was the first clear sentiment. The second clear sentiment was they didn't think he could win. Uh, they were very skeptical uh, about the capacity of this country to elect him. And I tried to assure them that both that he could win and that he, uh, as, as, the, as the trips moved closer and closer to election day, that he would win. Uh, having said that, uh, I think what's interesting about Obama's election is that in that regard, he's not only our first black president in a very superficial level, 
uh, as the 44th president, and you could argue he's our first post-racial president, or whatever kind of label you want to put on it. But I also think he will be, as I suggested in a, in a Baltimore Sun piece a couple of months ago, uh, he will be a soft power president in the sense that, uh, as many of my confused conservative readers misunderstood, not that he will refuse to use American hard power, military power, uh, but by virtue of the very fact of his election uh, and, and the somewhat and potentially risky commodification of him as an icon and as an identity, uh, he will begin to, uh, and already has probably, thawed a chilling relationship that we have uh, built over the last eight years with both friend and foe. And the reaction around the globe, if you look at the newspapers and you hear the stories about people buying up all the daily newspapers in foreign countries to have their Obama picture on the cover of newspapers in all the continents, is a remarkable fact. And so he becomes a global product of the United States in the way that Coca-Cola or the phrase OK is already. And so that puts an extraordinary pressure on him, but I also think it creates an an incredible opportunity for the United States abroad, which is something we, nobody's really talking about, I think, so far. Then moving back uh, in a very sort of nativistic way to the impact of his election for us here as Americans, I mean, I live in Washington, and I can tell you what I saw on election night, which is I'm sure what many of you saw in your respective communities, which was people literally running around like children in the streets. I saw adults skipping uh, through Washington and people <laughs> gravitating as if drawn by some giant electromagnet. Uh, to, to Lafayette Park in the White House uh, to spontaneously celebrate in a very peaceful way, with no arrest, by the way, um, this sort of cathartic sense that the country had been sort of trapped in this uh, failed administration uh, governed by a failed ideology and uh, an unpopular president, uh, and so a weight has been lifted. And I think part of the elation was also ratcheted up by, by uh, the sense, the doubt that somehow through a uh, giant international scheme uh, supervised by the Diebold company and uh, whatever that um, Charlie Brown was going to go up and take his swing at the football and Lucy was going to pull it away at the last minute somehow. And so I can't tell you how many emails and phone calls I personally had to take from my own friends and family members in the last two weeks going, just chill out, he's going to win. And then they were like, don't say that, that's going to cause, I'm like, you know, what are you, this is people believe in the, you know, uh, the, the, the Easter bunny and stuff. I mean, it's, come on, this is so superstitious. People are just freaking out and panicking. So having said that, I think there's this extraordinary opportunity here for the country uh, in the election of Barack Obama. And I try to say that by, after divorcing my own sort of democratic partisanship and my, my liberal ideology from that, I think that's an objective fact. And you see it with the exception of a few uh, people in the last throws on, you know, Sean Hannity and Rush Limbaugh. I think you see even conservatives recognizing that this is an extraordinary moment led by an extraordinary man and, and, and as Tyson pointed out, an, an, a really extraordinary campaign. Uh, let, me, let me make some, some observations about, uh, having said that, uh, about the Bradley effect. The Bradley effect refers to the gap between a poll response, an attitudinal measure, and a behavioral measure, which is how you actually voted. In that regard, I was surprised that there was no Bradley effect in the sense that the final polls, depending on which one you looked at, had the national composite around seven points. And we don't know the final totals yet, but it's going to be about seven points. And so in that regard, people didn't lie to pollsters uh, in any systematic way or dramatic way in saying that they were going to vote for Obama when, in fact, they didn't on Election Day. They did. That doesn't mean that race wasn't a factor in this election, and clearly it was to both uh, negative and, and, and positive uh, effects for Barack Obama and, and the Democratic uh, campaign uh, more broadly. Consider for a moment the following things. 
a campaign is really a contest between environmental factors and candidate effects, right? That's the, sort of the sum of the inputs. And if you look at the environmental factors, I am hard-pressed to find a single environmental factor. I can only think of one that favored the Republicans this cycle. It's difficult to win three presidential campaigns in a row. It's only happened once in the last 50 years, and that was in 1988 for a party, not for an individual since Roosevelt, of course. The unemployment rate was up and uh, was, uh, was high and growing. GDP growth was stagnating. Wages were stagnating. Uh, there was a massive, of course, housing financial crisis that drove people out of their homes, particularly in the Sun Belt. The President of the United States is, and this is not a normative statement, the most unpopular president in American history by any measure since the history of polling. There are uh, two wars going on, one of which is extraordinarily unpopular. And the percentage of the country that says that America is going in the wrong direction is at an all-time high. The only factor I can think of as a generic environmental factor uh, that favored the Republican candidate is that there was a Democratic Congress and so you could run, as McCain tried to run, against a you know, dangerous threesome of Nancy Pelosi, Harry Reid, and Barack Obama. You could run against unified government, which incidentally, polls of unified government and the percentage of people who uh, uh, oppose unified government, which generally more people like divided government, even the percentage of people who prefer divided government has gone down from 2006 to 2007, it's gone down about 10 or 12 points. So the resistance to the notion of allowing one party to control all of the apparatus of the national government, even that, though still an advantage for McCain, it's a weaker advantage. Then there are the candidate effects. And maybe this is subjective, but and you're welcome to disagree with me. The Democrats clearly had the better, more skilled, more charismatic candidate. Okay, we could argue about the age factor and whether it worked against him. Maybe Obama was too young, and if he was running against a guy who was 55 or 60, maybe it wouldn't have been an advantage his youth. But I think uh, uh, McCain's age and polls bear this out. Actually, at least cancels out that liability. So I'll take the youth part out of it. Better speaker and a better rhetor. A better funded campaign. I mean, never in American history has a campaign raised from one million contributors until this year, and Obama hit that, and then he hit two million, and then he hit three, and then he hit 3.2, and we don't even know what the final total is. Uh, a more polished candidate as a result of a competitive primary, which in the end helped Barack Obama, even though it you know, did some damage to him, but it also took a lot of things out of the way and made them stale stories by the fall, like the right story and other stories that the media and, and, for, and what really matters, the public didn't really care about. I think if the Reverend Wright story broke in October, it could have been a different election. And Barack Obama, other than the story breaking, say, in the middle of June, once he had the primary, if he had to pick between four moments for that story to break, late December, he wouldn't have been the nominee, right? Late October, he might not have been the winner of the general election if he had been the nominee. Uh, June, after he wrapped up the nomination, could have been the only better time for that story. And then, say, middle of the spring, when he had already essentially built an in insurmountable lead, it brought him back to earth a little bit against Hillary Clinton. So if that story were going to break and you had to choose between four moments, you would pick June 1st, April 2nd when it broke, or March, and then the primary, uh, and then the general election. So he even got lucky in that. Uh, and so, and I think he became a better debater and a better, and in some regards, a more humble candidate as a result of the Hillary Clinton challenge. He had by far a superior field campaign, uh, which, to, and to say this, compared to the 2004 Ken Melman-led field campaign for the Republicans, even exceeded that by all indications and admissions by the Republicans themselves. Superior technologically, and I can tell you plenty of stories that will blow your mind about the technological advantage of that campaign, which is sort of a subpoint. And he had the more unified and more enthusiastic party. Not to mention he had the better running mate, and he had a 15% partisan advantage in the National Party ID, which a couple of years ago was 34-34 between the two parties, and going into this election was 45-30. And, and I'm a liberal myself, I'll admit he had better media coverage. The only candidate effects I can find that advantaged John McCain were his Vietnam bio, maybe his age, which I think would probably actually cancel out, and his race, which brings me to my point about the non-Bradley race effect. 
in that environment, a seven-point victory, you could argue, is a pretty close race, all things considered. Uh, a candidate who had all of, the, uh, all of these advantage and all the personal skill sets of Barack Obama and his white, I would suggest you probably won by a wider margin. And when you look at the results, particularly through white Appalachia and so forth, it's hard not to conclude that. Would he have won by 20 points? No, but I'm suggesting he might have won by 10 or 11 or 12 points. So the notion that racism had no effect is zero. Now, on the other hand, race certainly helped. And where did it help him? It helped him with a massive turnout among African Americans, obviously, and a higher share of their votes. And it helped him with sort of post-racial whites, younger whites, college-educated whites. What's interesting to me about the coalition that Barack Obama built, and he built two of them, and I'll explain the differences between the two, is that it is a truly 21st century electoral coalition in a way that we have never seen. And let me walk it through chronologically. In the Democratic primary, Barack Obama built a coalition that Democrats had talked about, particularly liberal white Democrats had talked about for years, but were never able to assemble. And what was that coalition? If you look back at failed sort of liberal college professor latte sipping, uh, you know, saviors, and I'm talking about the Howard Deans and the Bill Bradleys and the Gary Hart's over the years, they got a lot of attention in magazine covers, and they were the next savior of the Democratic Party. And then by the time they got to Iowa, New Hampshire, they ran aground because what? Lunch pail whites combined with working class non-whites, which was mostly blacks and increasingly is black brown wouldn't vote for these candidates. And so they had the votes of the college professors and their students and some other you know, race liberals and maybe some upscale blacks and, and Latinos. But that was not enough to win a Democratic primary, right? And so all of these candidates just fell hard against that to the more sort of working class. And you don't think of them today as that way, but the George McGovern and even certainly Walter Mondale and Bill Clinton absolutely and Al Gore kind of candidates. Those were the eventual victors in between the sort of six pack and the, and the latte divisions within the Democratic Party. What Barack Obama did was merely take the black vote and tip to the scales on the other side and created a completely different coalition. It was black people and people like me, right? That's who nominated Barack Obama. He changed that calculus by taking one subset. Remember, Hillary Clinton dominated among Latinos. She dominated among working class whites. He changed, I mean, it's an oversimplification of the new coalition, but that was enough to tip the balance of power and not very much, right? 18 million to 18 million. The reason Barack Obama won, for a variety of reasons I don't want to go back, is because he maximized his votes. He knew how to use the caucus states. He maximized his resources in a way that Hillary Clinton, who clearly, clearly uh, under, underestimated him, uh, did not. Then in the general election, he essentially did that and magnified it. He did that and magnified it, right? He got all of the black vote instead of, you know, in some states, don't forget Hillary Clinton, even after some of Bill Clinton's injudicious comments about race, still got 22% of the black vote in South Carolina on nomination day, right? Now, Barack Obama didn't need to worry about getting uh, to 80%. Now he could get to 95%. So he magnified his share of the black vote. He obviously went from getting a third to 40% of the Latino vote in the primary to getting two-thirds to 70% of the Latino vote in the general elections, which is why he swept through those southwestern states. And then look where he won in the South. I actually think, yes, it's, it's hard to talk about my book in the context of Florida, Virginia, North Carolina, but not that hard. But not that hard because guess what? He won the states with very small black populations, and he won the states with very affluent white and black populations. He won the states in order that have the highest median income in the 11 southern states, Virginia, Florida, and North Carolina. And by the way, of the nine states he flipped, those are three of the four closest states that he flipped in terms of his margins. They were very narrow. And as for the Barack Obama campaign, I do know that they read my stuff, and I do know they read my New York Times op-ed, and, and they moved their money out of Georgia late in the campaign and put it into North Carolina. And if they had kept that money in Georgia, they might have lost both of those states, I would say in my defense. So, <laughs> um, so it's not every day you, get a, you, know, you talk to your friend in a campaign, they're like, you were on the campaign call today. So that was nice news. 
As for the regional thing, I, I've taken way too much time, but just to give you a sense of this dramatic shift, uh, which I did, I have to, in my defense, say forecast. In the, in the presidential election, uh, assuming North Carolina goes, which it hasn't gone, that'll give Barack Obama 364 electoral votes. He'll have 309 of them, or 85% of them, from outside the South. Uh, we still have a couple of races that haven't been decided, including here in Maryland, but I think in the end it'll be about 258 seats for Nancy Pelosi. She'll have 200 of them, 78% outside the South. And if you give her black and Latino Southern legislators, she will have a majority without a single white Southern Democrat. In the Senate, we don't know on the Al Franken and, and the Alaska seat. I think the Democrats will end up probably losing them both. So assume 57 seats, and the Democrats will have 50, an uh, absolute majority, 50 non-Southern senators, or 88%. And then when you look at the House performance rates, this is the breakdown by region, House and Senate. In New England, uh, even without the Craddaville seat, the Democrats right now have 80%, 80% of House seats, 76 out of 95 between Maine and Maryland and West Virginia and the 13 states of the Northeast County County DC, 12 states. They have 74% of the seats in the 12 Midwestern states. They have 66% of the seats in the far Western states, but just 44% of the House seats in the South. On the Senate side, it's even more dramatic. They have 88%, 21 of the 24 US senators in, in, uh, in the Midwest, or excuse me, in the Northeast. They have 58% in both the Midwest and the Far West, and just 27%. Even with the addition of Hagan and Mark Warner, they have seven of 26. Uh, 22 and really 26 if you count, I'm, I'm simplifying the regions by adding Oklahoma and Kentucky to the South. So that Democratic non-Southern majority exists right now and I think it will persist. And you have a situation where you don't have a single Republican now from the six New England states and you only have three Republicans out of 29 in New York. So the greater New England seven states have 51 congressmen and congresswomen and the Democrats have 48 of them. I mean that's just a whitewashing. So the party that has a regional problem now is the Republican Party, and it's certainly in the Northeast and increasingly in the Midwest and the Far West. And so they better be careful to be relegated to a party, uh, to quote uh, one book, that owns the South and little else. <laughs> All right, I want to open it up to questions and answers, but I first want to call on Nick Miller. Um, political science department uh, professor um, who has some data that he wants to share with us. Nick, do you want to come up here and talk or do you want to uh, take the hand mic? Can I just talk, talk? Yeah, we need to give you a mic. Okay. Here's the hand mic. Oh, here it is. We've got one right here. That's for real. Yeah. Uh, I ran off couple of tables, which are similar, or charts, that are, which are similar to things I've done before in earlier elections. Uh, this first one, on the front page, shows the, shows the relationship between the Kerry vote four years ago and the Obama vote uh, two days ago. Uh, this data was taken from David Leip's Atlas of U.S. Elections. It's not up to date. It totals less than 120 million votes, and I think we're going to get over 130 million votes. Uh, so there is some approximation. Uh, each uh, state is represented by a point in this graph, and as you look down, you see how Kerry did. As you look across, you see how Obama did uh, yesterday. The lower of the two diagonal lines, if states, uh, uh, if points were plotted right on that line, would be the Kerry vote and the Obama vote are equal. He didn't pick up anything or lose anything relative to Kerry. As you'll see, almost all the states are above that 45-degree uh, line. Uh, you do see the phenomenon that was mentioned before, that little crescent basically sort of at the mouth of the uh, Mississippi River, where actually Kerry ran stronger than uh, Obama. 
uh, the second line that is parallel uh, is where the states would fall if uh, uh, Obama basically got 6% more of the popular vote than uh, Kerry did if every state was simply its two, uh, 2004 vote plus 6%. And as you see, uh, states are scattered about that line as well. But I think the basic uh, emphasis here is, in a sense, they, uh, Obama did not really redraw the electoral map. It, it's simply that things shifted in his favor by about uh, 5 or 6 or 7%. The only outlier state, other than the two that swung against uh, Obama, is Hawaii. I guess a multiracial state likes a multiracial homeboy candidate. Uh, if you look at the table below, or the chart below, this plots on the assumption that we allow the vote for Obama to shift upwards by any number of percentage points or downwards by any number of percentage points uniformly across the state and then plot how many electoral votes a Democratic candidate would have won uh, uh, accordingly and uh, you get this uh, function that looks like this. It moves up, of course, in discrete steps because states fall, uh, electoral votes are lumpy and uh, they fall on an all or nothing basis. Uh, what is perhaps interesting, and the reason I have done this for elections going back many years, is to sort of zoom in on the perfect, almost perfect pie region. And what this shows, what I do this, when I do this in the past, usually what uh, I'm looking for is a small interval in the popular vote where there would have been a wrong winner. That is, the candidate who got the most electoral votes still wouldn't have had uh, a majority of electoral votes. What we have here, and this is only the second election out of all the ones I've done, which is almost all of them, is there's an interval in there where a tie would have been created, something that was talked about in the media quite a bit. Uh, if you see, if Obama had gotten between about 49.7% of the vote up to about 51% of the vote, we would have had a 269-269 tie. The map below shows what the electoral map would look like in that kind of 50-50 election. The shaded states are what Obama would carry. His weakest state that would create the tie is Iowa. Uh, his next weakest state, uh, which uh, what it was uh, Colorado. Again, this map really looks a lot like the two last elections, which empirical fact were about 50-50. Uh, so if you just sort of adjust Obama's vote down by about uh, four percentage points, the map looks just about the same as two and eight years ago. And finally, since people have talked about the Bradley effect, uh, you, many of you probably saw this rather striking chart that appeared in the Washington Post two or three weeks ago. Uh, unfortunately, Gallup poll data is proprietary and not open to public analysis, uh, and that's especially important since it's only Gallup data that uh, uh, brackets the beginning and the end point of this timeline from 1958 to 07 with this enormous shift in uh, responses to this question. Uh, but the general social survey data is available, and I took a look at it, and the chart below is an attempt to address the question, if we look at this huge change in uh, white attitudes, at least as recorded in response to this poll question, to what extent were individual whites actually changing their minds, or to what extent was older generations that were more skeptical about voting for a black candidate being replaced by younger generations uh, who were more uh, open to it. 
And uh, the final chart showed something about this. Uh, this is, uh, unfortunately, the, the chart should be color-coded, but it is not because we don't have a color printer. Uh, but uh, the, you see uh, basically four parallel lines. And the first line is uh, responses by people born before 1910. Uh, the second line is responses by people in each year born uh, between, well, the, uh, what's his name, the greatest generation the World War II generation, then the baby boomers, no, then my generation, uh, Depression War babies, uh, and then finally the baby boomers, and then finally Generation X. So the slope of each line downwards is sort of an indication of how much people within each generation changed, but the distance between these lines uh, is, uh, indicates a difference from one generation to the next. Uh, and just as a concluding point, I'm a little annoyed with Generation X uh, because it doesn't fit the rest of the picture uh, nearly as nicely. <laughs> Otherwise, it's, uh, you know, these are trend lines that guarantee they're regression lines. They're guaranteed to be straight, but they're not guaranteed to be parallel. But in fact, they are parallel. Thank you very much, Nick. Uh, let me now open it. I'm going to give this to Evan. If you have a question, um, Evan will give you the mic. If you can speak into the mic, because we are recording this, and it will be on the website um, tomorrow, I suppose. So let me open it to questions and answers. Um, anybody have a first question? Yes. Uh, do any of you think this is the electorate of the future, or is it simply just based on this election, this candidate? next four years, next eight years, so on. The uh, prevalence of the young voters, black voters, a lot more votes. Let me start uh, with a response to that. I think all elections are unique and all elections are different. Um, so there's probably a yes and no answer to your question. And with that profundity, I'm going to hand it over to Patty. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's the first election of the rest of American history, actually, not to be hyperbolic about it. Uh, this is the first election in American history where uh, one quarter of the votes are cast by non-whites. I don't see that going backwards. Uh, the generational uh, effect, of course, will moderate across time. Remember, some of the voters that are breaking for McCain that are in their 60s are voters who are from the generation that was you know, protesting in the streets and on college campuses in the, in the 1960s. So, uh, people do change their uh, uh, partisan preferences across time, and just because you have, uh, I think Obama won the youth vote, depending on how you measure it, I actually have it here, uh, by 30 points, depends if you measure it under 30 or just under 25. If you measure it under 30, it's plus 34, 66 to 32. I don't think Democrats generally, or any specific Democrat, will maintain that 34-point generational gap in perpetuity, uh, but it's easier to get partisans if you socialize them early. So that certainly doesn't bode well for the Republicans moving forward. But I think what is different about it is, I think it's, it, race is certainly part of it. I think class is a big part of it too. I, I think the notion that you can build a coalition between upscale whites and working class non-whites is fascinating, right? It's not that Obama didn't get union white labor vote and downscale whites. He did get some of their votes, but not at the level that Hillary Clinton would have gotten. Uh, or Democrats passed. This is not the coalition even that elected Bill Clinton. It's not. Uh, there's certainly a, a high degree of overlap, and you know, I don't know exactly. I'd like to 
plumb the numbers a little bit to see you know, how much those two circles overlap each other. And, I'm, and there's obviously still a high level of overlap. Uh, but the notion going into the election that it was going to be the same winning coalition in the primary was, was a mistake by Hillary Clinton, and in the general election was a mistake by John McCain. I think a lot of it is going to depend on Barack Obama's performance in office and, and um, how long the honeymoon period lasts and what kind of – every president makes mistakes in their, in their first uh, six months and year, and we'll, we'll see how significant those mistakes are. Um, I read a statistic uh, yesterday that said once people vote two times in a row for, for a presidential candidate of one party, it's, very, it's a lot less likely than they switch back and vote uh, – switch parties after that. So I. You know, if there are people who are Kerry voters and then Obama voters, uh, the d Democrats might be upending the permanent Republican majority that Karl Rove tried, tried to create. I think the young voters who, vote, who voted Obama the first time will see in the, in the years, ahead, in the two years ahead, whether their expectations are fulfilled or not and how much they want to remain engaged in the, in the political process. I mean, the, 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 uh, the, the trick of the youth vote is that if people feel that they're, it's been hard in previous campaigns to rely on young voters, and if, if they feel that their participation in the political process is not yielding results, I think there's a potential for, for that participation to erode. I will say this, I live in a household with a, uh, an 11-year-old and an 8-year-old who were incredibly engaged in this election, and we're staying up, filling out the electoral map that we printed in the Baltimore. We had this full-page graphic uh, uh, the day of the election where you, you know, follow it home and track it. And my, uh, my uh, eight-year-old son, who happens to love geography and, and you know, the, the maps and states as it is, was sitting, filling out, you know, and, and, and he had to go, they, they both had to go to sleep before the winner was announced. And I asked my daughter yesterday, I said, were you, you know, so when you woke up, were you surprised? And she said, I, I wasn't surprised by the winner. I was surprised by the number, the amount that he won by. So they were following the electoral vote level. I think, I, and I think you've got probably, I think, a lot of 6 and 8 and 10 and 12-year-olds who are following this election very closely and are going to be involved in the political process for a long time. So I think the answer comes back to how Barack Obama performs in office and what, and what those what those 10-year-olds, 12-year-olds, 15-year-olds see the political process doing for them as this administration goes forward. All I can add to that is it depends upon what our expectations are. I think the expectations for Obama's ability to perform are so high and they may be unrealistic in, in, in some regards. And so people might naturally be disappointed because people think perhaps the, the president has too much power and the president can do too much to control the economy. And there are economists who disagree about the sort of elasticity of, of the president's ability to control the, the economy. So if things get better, that's great. But if things get worse, people might have some sort of regrets. Uh, next question in the back, lady in the blue. Actually, heard anything about that? If anyone studied that, I think that 
there were a lot of moderates, uh, moderate Republicans, um, sort of independents, who really just, in the, in the end, they couldn't, they couldn't do it. They couldn't vote what they would have considered their party. Any evidence on that? Any thoughts? Well, I have, to, uh, I have to plumb the numbers. Uh, I have to, uh, to go into the numbers. But again, I think Nick's uh, figure is important that this, the hype about the Bradley effect itself may be a little overestimated. That's number one. Number two, there are different types of African-American candidates running and in different states. So to say because Harold Ford lost in Tennessee that it's a Bradley effect and that's different than why Michael Steele may have lost. I mean, these are different types of candidates running on different types of platforms. And again, as I said earlier, I think that because Obama did not racialize himself as much as other candidates may or may not have been racialized, that sort of eased the anxiety of, of some whites. Now, it didn't sort of get rid of the anxiety because we're still in a country that sort of fixates on race, but I think it's a different argument he was making. And every attempt to sort of racialize them, I think, backfired and backfired significantly given the fact that people said that they were similarly situated in the economy. And so they had to sort of get out of this boat together. I, I was in some email exchanges on election night with some of my friends who were sort of that demographic, guys in their 40s who were Republican and had voted Republican uh, uh, all, all their uh, lives probably, or at least since Ronald Reagan and, and moving forward. And um, I think the economy was the driving factor for, 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 for these friends and associates of mine. I, I think Tom spoke to, the, to all those in, um, environmental factors that were, that were working against Republicans and for Democrats. I think because the, the, the economy was such the driving force in, in this uh, election, I don't know that we can separate out those two components just yet. So I think all else being equal, these you know, the people I know that fall into that into that category, white men who who you know would be inclined to vote for, for uh, John McCain or said I'm not gonna vote for Barack Obama and went in the the voting booth and did vote for him, I think a lot of them in my anecdotal experience were driven by the economy and not as much as sort of changing uh, uh, social mores over time. Let me just step in on, on that. Um, the, the, the exit polling data show that in every state, uh, and it, it ranged a little bit, but like in Maryland, 90% of the people said the economy was what was driving them. And if you look at virtually all categories of voters, there was a net shift in nearly all categories to Obama. Well, first of all, remember, the Bradley effect is a polling versus a voting effect. It doesn't mean because there's no Bradley effect that there's no racial effect racial effects in the election, whether for in, in Obama's favor or against. Uh, and so we're not going to know if there's a reverse Bradley effect because they're not polling for that effect. So we're just not, I don't think we'll have any data to, to, to prove one way or the other. But how could we maybe infer about the, uh, this? Well, first of all, remember, even if Barack Obama got 7% nationally and the composite of the poll showed him winning 7% nationally, that doesn't mean he performed equally in all 50 states, right? So in theory, there could be a racialized effect, a Bradley effect in some states that favors him and in some other states that don't, and in the wash, it comes out as 7% nationally and not elsewhere. And if you look at these county level polls and you look at where, uh, as, um, as Tyson did, I think very well, if you look at where, uh, not just what Obama's margins were versus McCain, but what his net margins were compared to the, the Kerry Bush margins, because that's the net difference. 
Look where Obama did worse than Kerry. Look at the states that are off the tangent on Nick's chart. Tennessee, Arkansas. Now, Arkansas is kind of an outlier because it's Hillary Clinton state and there might have been more sort of Puma backlash there. But the states where Obama underperformed relative to Kerry, even though he, he, did, he won the election and Kerry didn't, are states that have sort of working class Appalachian significant populations. And when you look at the county level maps that were produced in the New York Times and the USA Today, even in states where he won, the parts where he underperformed relative to the expectations are those states. So there's still probably a Bradley effect there. Uh, and so, you know, if, if in a particular state, um, Obama didn't do as well as the national polls by 3%, and then another state he did better than the polls by 3%, of course that could always be a sampling error. It could, it could even out in the wash just because he did seven in the polls and seven in the national area. As for racializing a candidate, I think Tyson's absolutely right. I mean, you do have some control over whether you run as a racialized candidate because you have, you can make determinations about who you uh, consort with and how you present yourself and the issues you talk about and, and how you dress even, right? You can racialize yourself or not. What to me is interesting about a Barack Obama is that he's a safe harbor candidate uh, as a minority candidate for white America, which may play into the answer to this question. What do I mean by that? Well, first of all, though you can control how racialized a candidate you are, some of the things are merely biographical, right? And Barack Obama's biography is fundamentally different from previous presidential candidates like Al Sharpton and Jesse Jackson on at least four, and you could argue maybe even more, on at least four reasons. One, he's half black. And not to minimize that, but he does have a white family and he made sure to let you know in Denver that he has a white family and he's also light-skinned accordingly. And anybody who knows anything about race religion, I'd much rather have Tyson talk about this, there are discernments that are made within communities of color about people who are darker and people who are lighter, is there not? Number two, his black half is continental African. It's not African-American. His ancestor, so to speak, arrived on an airplane 40 years ago, not on a slave ship 400 years ago, right? Third, he does not come from the historic power center in African-American politics, which is the church, because it was the only place you could derive status and power because African-Americans were systematically denied opportunities to achieve in business and politics and other traditional routes where white politicians come from. Barack Obama did the traditional, quote unquote, white route to power, which is he went to Harvard Law School and he became a state legislator and then he became a US senator and then he became president, right? I mean, that's the more traditional route, right? His status was derived through the traditional political system. And then lastly, though he was a community organizer in Chicago, he did not grow up in Chicago. He's not from the South Side. He was born in Kansas. He was raised in Indonesia and Hawaii, right? So this is a guy who on at least those four scores is not Al Sharpton. And if you look at, say, the political positions of Al Sharpton and Jesse Jackson relative to Barack Obama, ideologically, there's some distance there, not much, right? But does anybody think that Al Sharpton running on Barack Obama's platform could have been the nominee, no less the president? No way, right? No way Al Sharpton running on the exact same messages the exact same platform with the exact same unified Democratic Party could have won this election. Does anybody think that's the case? No, and so Barack Obama is the safe harbor black candidate, and I'm not saying that in any way to derogate whites who voted for him. I think they voted to them with a full and open heart about a post-racial America. I'm not in any way suggesting otherwise, but he's a different kind of black candidate to vote for than those other candidates. Next question, right there. Um, could you speak to the effects going forward to technology. And not just in the sense of new media for campaigning and fundraising, but also the experience of polling, say, uh, for people like myself who don't excuse have me, a Excuse me, Tyson has to leave to go teach a class, so let's thank him for his. But so on, on both sides of it, from campaigning, using new media, and fundraising, also to how that's going to change polling. The, te the technology aspect. Yeah. What, what was the what was the look? I'll start. start. 
Well, look, Obama ran a state-of-the-art campaign, and uh, the first person to realize that was Hillary Clinton, and, and then John McCain got a nice good whiff of it in, uh, after June. And let me just give you some examples. First of all, do you remember late in the primary season when Hillary Clinton was still trying to hang on and she was complaining about how she was getting outspent in states three and four to one? Now, you would think that Barack Obama had outraised her three and four to one, but no. If you look at the FCC, FEC reports that were published by, say, early June, Barack Obama had raised about 250, 260, 270 million dollars in the primary. Hillary Clinton had raised 210 and loaned herself 15. So she raised or borrowed 225 million dollars. He, he raised outright about 260, let's say 270. That's about 88 cents on the dollar. So how is it you're getting outspent three or four to one when you only got outraised eight to seven? And the answer is because Hillary Clinton was running Al Gore, her husband's campaign, with a newer website. She was raising on the old fundraising model of $2,300 increments from high-dollar donors at fancy events that include insurance and food and drivers and delivering the candidate. And so she was raising with a high overhead in the old model. And then in addition, most of her money, a big chunk of her money, was raised in 2007 through direct mail, which has an, has an ancillary benefit in the sense that you're developing names. But the direct mail marketers, they take anywhere between 15% of the low end and 30%, if it's a bad list or an old list or a hard to raise from list, they take 15 or 30% of the money off the top. Meanwhile, Barack Obama in January raised $52 million and he raised $45 million of it online, or in February, after he started to win those primaries. And he's raising it on the internet, right? And the internet, other than the time it takes for the staff to collect the money and process it, and send a thank you email, which is all automated, and then file the FEC reports, which they have to deliver in hand trucks because they were so huge. Other than the incidental overhead, and by the way, all campaigns have to do that anyway, so that overhead is, is, is universal. Barack Obama's keeping 99 cents on the dollar, and Hillary Clinton's keeping 70 cents on the dollar. That starts to add up after a while. So she was running an old model campaign technologically, and that's just on the fundraising side. Barack Obama's campaign was so sophisticated technology, technologically. David can tell you the way they treat the media, because I'm on all their media lists, and I know David is too. The, the, First of all, the rate of response and the rapid response takes whatever the Clintons did in the war room era and just ratchets it up to like a moonshot level of, of sophistication. Secondly, like Obama used the new technology. I have the Obama iPhone application, right? And it goes through your address book and sorts everybody based on whether they're in swing states or not and tells you to call them, right? And it keeps a log of whether or not and when you called them. I mean, that is high tech, right? It's peer to peer, right? It's like the way unions use member to member contact. They realize that rather than having somebody show up on Saturday morning and hand them a walk list with a little check off and make them walk around and hope that they can talk to six people an hour in a community they don't, that they live in with, even though the people next to them are strangers, why not have somebody who went to college with some guy, even though he lives in Iowa, call him from New York and, and phone bank him from there. But the most dramatic thing I saw, I don't know if you were at that event down in South Carolina when, when, when Oprah Winfrey came out for, for, for Barack Obama. And they did this at all the events. This is the first time I saw it. I was just blown away. That event where Oprah Winfrey endorsed, she did four events. She did two in Iowa, one South Carolina, and one New Hampshire. They showed up about 10.30 in the morning, 11 o'clock in the morning. The first person in line was in line at 5.15 in the morning at the williams Bryce Stadium on the USC campus. They handed everybody a card when they went in there. And they did entertainment, blah, 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 Will I Am, Black Eyed Peas, they played and all that stuff. About half an hour before the event, somebody came out, the young 28-year-old guy, he was the campaign field coordinator or whatever it was for the South Carolina Ryan. Gave him a microphone and he said, hey, remember when you walked in, we gave you a card. They wouldn't let you in the stadium without handing you a card. They said, take those cards out now. Now everybody's got a cell phone, hold up your cell phone. And they said, there's five names on the back of that card. And the instructions are on the other side. We want you to call those five names, tell them where you are, what you're doing, and why you're supporting Barack Obama. Find out if they're registered and tell them why you should, they should be voting for Barack Obama. These are South Carolina registered voters. 
and they, you know, in 29,000 people, you subtract kids and people without phone, maybe there's 15,000 phones in there, times five, they phone bank 75,000 phone calls in 20 minutes. Anybody who's ever worked on a campaign, you're lucky if people come in in the old style, you know, the digital, if you can get 12 calls an hour out of somebody. And how many, oh, and you gotta buy pizza and donuts and all that overhead, and send cars to pick them up. This is state of the art. Then they said, now keep your cell phones out and text the campaign number, which is 62662, right, David? They do it at every event, star 62662. Now they got your phone number, and now they're phone banking you. Come do more. Why don't you give us a check? They got you in their thing. I mean, it was so state of the art. It was unbelievable. And that was a huge advantage for him in beating Hillary Clinton. They had a more sophisticated campaign technologically. They had a better fundraising model. And that made all the difference in an election that in the primary came down to 18 million and change versus 18 million and change. The only thing I would add to that is, is it does become the model. I just don't know if there's other candidates where that level of enthusiasm would, would translate, where people would want to get involved at that level. I think people were, I think they, they were able to use the technology because of the enthusiasm among so many groups, young, young voters, uh, minority voters, that people will try, I think future candidates will try to replicate that, but I, I don't know whether that, that, uh, that genie can be captured in the bottle again because of the level of excitement over, over that candidacy. Speaking of enthusiasm, um, the data, polling data prior to election day, uh, when asked, um, Obama voters, about 70% of them said they were enthusiastic or very enthusiastic about his campaign, and only about 35 to 37% of McCain voters did. Next question. Yeah. Patricia, uh, uh, use the microphone if you would, please. <clears throat> I, I want to follow up on the enthusiasm. Uh, part of it because you have this huge groundswell of people who've been working, some of them for two years, others very hard for the last two weeks. How do you think the uh, president-elect is going to use these people and use this technology as he governs? Good question. That's an excellent question. I've been thinking about that myself. I mean, you know, Tom just laid out uh, you know, this new model that, that he's used. I mean, I, I think they, they've got to, you heard it in his, uh, in his speech on Tuesday night, that's, and, he, and he said that in all of his speeches, this is, not, this is not about me, this is about you, and when you come to these events, we rely on you to get involved. And he said, he, he very emphatically said on Tuesday night, um, I need you to help me. So now he has this, this network, this database, it's got to be more, I think, than call your congressman to get this piece of legislation passed. That doesn't feel like what the Barack Obama campaign is all about. Uh, uh, so I wish I, I, I want to find out the answer to that. I don't have a great answer, but I, I think that that he will use that network in governing. I, I, I want to learn and hear from the campaign how they, uh, how they exactly uh, plan to do that. I haven't heard that yet. Have you heard anything on that? Uh, I'm sure they're planning something. If David Pluff is half as smart as I think he is, I mean, this guy is a genius that ran that, this campaign for Barack Obama. He mentioned him in the speech from Grant Park, if you notice. I mean, the two, I call them the Goliath Davids, you know, David Pluff and David Axelrod. I mean, they just beat, they just beat the tar out of the McCain people on message and, and, and staying on message and then the field campaign was just brilliant, uh, both in the primary and the general election. So I think they'd be crazy not to use that list. And, and it wouldn't be the end of the world if they had used it to have people call their member of Congress or to send in an email form or to just write an old-fashioned letter. I mean, Dean sort of innovated this where he had people writing letters for other states and stuff like that. And they'd be crazy not to use it for to, to apply political pressure. I mean, right now, major interest groups, and those of you taking my lobby class, know that grass tops 
you know, AstroTurf lobbying works for all these trade associations in a very sophisticated way. When the AMA is trying to fight for a bill or oppose a bill, they call their doctors from the different states, and they have a model with everybody in their database, and they try to bring in 30 doctors from Arkansas, and they send them to talk to the Arkansas delegation in Alaska and Arizona and Alabama. They do the same thing. So if you are going to create a new kind of politics that's more organic, that is bottom-up instead of top-down, and you're going to try to push back on these interest groups who have the resources and the wherewithal to bring in you know, fancy doctors or realtors from the different states to bring pressure on a communications bill or a healthcare bill. And then Barack Obama has got a counterweight to that where he turns the switch and says, all right, David, here's what we want you to search for. We want you to search for people who meet the following criteria and send them this blast email and have them give them this 800 number to call down to Congress to push these these, these, uh, these Congress uh, people who are sort of uh, on the fence on this issue, and we, we've identified 20 of them, and let's find out who we know that lives in their districts, because they can sort it by their, by their, by their, by their census block, and boom, let's, let's apply some pressure onto these people. They'd be crazy not to use it. I don't know how they're gonna use it, but I, I guarantee you they will. Why wouldn't they? Let, let me ask uh, David if he would talk about campaign coverage. There was a lot of talk in the campaign, a lot of talk in the media, about the campaign coverage. The McCain people were saying throughout the election that, that Obama was being treated entirely differently than McCain was. There seems to be some evidence that that was the case. Uh, David, you want to talk about that for a minute? Sure. Um, there were a, a lot of changes in this election cycle than, than in the past. The number of news organizations that could uh, staff or embed uh, correspondents, reporters with campaigns was 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 really limited and a lot less in the past. We couldn't do it with the Baltimore Sun. I mean, we were not we were not on the plane or on the buses uh, nonstop. We we picked our spots and, and tried to do it. There were there were just a couple of newspapers. There's an interesting story. Um, uh, the, the people who were doing it for like NBC News and some of these other and, and CNN, they're like stringers, 24 year old young people who are now out of jobs. Uh, it, it's no we're beyond the. The, the, uh, the boys on the bus, the, you know, the hardcore uh, group of veteran AP, New York Times, Washington Post, and, and Baltimore Sun, Pittsburgh, uh, Post-Gazette reporters who, who follow these, these candidates everywhere. Um, so the day-in, day-out coverage from, from news organizations was, um, was different than it's been in the past, and, and that was also a function of the way, uh, you know, every, one thing that struck me about going to events, and Tom, you probably saw this too, when you're, when you're at a, an event like South Carolina or you're at the convention, everybody is a reporter in the sense that everybody has a little, some sort of recording device, audio, video, blog, and, and they're all sort of recording each other. To me, it sounds like, it, it feels like this big echo chamber where it's beyond having your 15 minutes of fame, but everybody's opinion is important. Everybody is being, is being captured back and forth uh, and, and, and put up on, in some sort of digital form instantly. So I think it becomes harder to figure out which voices to listen to because there is so much information out there. Um, I find it ironic that the McCain campaign was complaining about media coverage. I think me media criticism is is important, but it's also fairly easy. This was a the McCain campaign was a campaign. His candidacy and his strength as a national candidate 
was built on the fact that he would talk unfettered to the press in his 2000 campaign and in 2008. The reason the reason he was the reason he was he he had his national stature is is in large part because of his willingness to sit down with a group of reporters, say whatever is, uh, was on his mind, not worry as much if it was on the record or off the record. And in in large extent, the, the, the 2000 John McCain, uh, I think, operated kind of like you know. The 1932 Yankees operate when you're a sports writer. You know, you know if you're traveling with him, you know when things are on the record. You know when things are off the record. You know not to burn your source. As as the uh, campaign evolved and he fell behind in the polls, that changed a lot. And there were stories written about about the access to John McCain. That said, Barack Obama pr provided terrible media access, absolutely terrible. He there was no advantage for him talking to the media, and he did it very infrequently. So, so we will see very different media campaigns in the future. There will be even less people on the bus and on the campaign trail next time around because there's, there's even less value to get from it. I happen to think if, if, if you look through the uh, investigative stories that had been done on everything from Tony Resco and, and Obama's land deal, how he purchased his house, to uh, associations with Reverend Wright, to McCain's association with lobbyists, to Barack Obama's present votes in the Illinois legislature. I think an awful lot of solid journalism was done during this uh, campaign. I think, by and large, Bar Barack Obama, I mean, what, what was the adjective you used to, to, to describe the question of, I mean, it, it's, it's an election for the ages. It, it's, an, it, it's an epochal time. So is that gonna get a, a, a different type of media coverage, yes. But when Sarah Palin was announced as the nominee, that all of a sudden she became the next new thing, the next big thing. That was a huge story too. Uh, we like in the media, we like we we like news stories and exciting stories, and we also have a responsibility to vet people who are relatively untested. Barack Obama was exciting and untested, so we both covered it for his level of, for the level of newness, novelty, and we also had to vet him, and I would argue that Sarah Palin fell into the same category. The, the, the level of coverage that she received was because she was entirely unknown and, and represented a, 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 a new face on the scene and was an attractive candidate in many ways, physically attractive and attractive because of what she represented, a, a woman, uh, a young woman in, in the Republican Party uh, reaching out to social, social conservatives. So I find in general, a lot of media criticism, as someone who's involved in sort of the day-to-day decision-making process of what to cover and what not to cover, and what to put in the paper or not, and what to put online or not, with fairly limited resources, I, I think a lot of the decisions that get made are, are uh, backed by logic, and, um, and I don't have a lot of complaints about how the media handled this election cycle. Well, let me echo a couple of points, uh, David, and then, and then add one. First of all, <coughs> Uh, I, I, Jason Lavilia and I taught a class in politics in the meeting. We took we took our students on a bus trip down uh, last spring to to uh, last fall to Washington. Uh, we had a we had a private session with Chuck Todd, who's now the wasn't then or I guess he just had become the NBC political director. And he said, you know, people keep saying that Barack Obama is running his campaign, his media campaign, like the Bush campaign's media operation. He says that's wrong. He's running it like the Bush White House. And David's right. For people who are First Amendment absolutist and you know open media kind of people. Uh, talk about Tyson's suggestion of disappointment. Barack Obama is going to run a lockdown media operation in the White House. You can bet your bottom dollar on that. 
Uh, if you're a liberal Democrat who wants to see a non-Clinton-style George Stephanopoulos leaking at 11:30 uh, to try to screw the guy in the office three down from you, a disciplined media operation from Democrats, you might be you might be elated by that. I'm a liberal Democrat as a member of the media, so I have mixed sort of mixed feelings about about this development, as I'm sure many in the media do. As for complaining, I mean, I think John McCain was complaining more. Uh, as a way to rally the base. If the media changed its coverage of him, that would have been an ancillary additional benefit for it, but I think that was media signaling. I mean, you, you saw in the McCain-Palin campaign the attempt to use all of the old tricks and tools, whether it was patriotism and who's a real American or too liberal or, or the media you know, elites want this guy or whatever. They tried all of those things and those weapons just were without bullets this time because the economy, as, as my colleagues have pointed out, just drown out any attempts to play culture war politics. But I think he really did the media thing to rally the base more than he was to complain about the media. And on that score, consider John McCain's biography and imagine if it were Barack Obama's biography. Imagine if Barack Obama were divorced and had a reputation for having cheated on his wife after he came back from Vietnam and then left her while she was crippled to marry a beer heiress, right? And then now today, married into his money, has so many homes he cannot remember how many there are, but it's seven or eight, has 12 automobiles. He's an irregular church attendee. He is known, widely on Capitol Hill for having a very aggressive and a very flinty personality, sort of you're in my friend's list or you're in my enemy's inbox. Uh, and it was involved in a major pay-to-play pay uh, lobbying scandal in, in the early part of his career, not to mention the fact that he's changed position on a whole host of issues, including immigration, taxes, and even torture. The depiction of that candidate for Barack Obama would have been a corrupt, out-of-touch, flinty, elitist flip-flopper, and you did not get that caricature of John McCain, even though all of those biographical elements are part of it. So I think Barack Obama had a bit of an immunity because he was a, a non-white candidate, and I think the media probably in, in erred on the side of giving him favorable coverage because they understood the historical moment, and they were very careful about being attacked for, uh, for criticizing him uh, as some sort of race attack. But I also think by the same logic, and, and John McCain did not hesitate to use this shield, John McCain's Vietnam service also gave him a sort of get out of pass free. So I think these are two candidates who have almost zero room, very, very little room, except for occasional episodes, like the crappy Charlie Gibson, George Stephanopoulos debate where they were you know, asked about flag pins and this stuff. Aside from occasional episodes where the media misbehave, uh, neither of these candidates really has a bill of complaints that I think is legitimate. Yes. I was wondering about like the political satire factor, like how much that played into it, especially like with SNL and Tina Fey and, uh, and Sarah Palin. Well. I I just wrote a piece for Salon, actually, about uh, what, what I'm suggesting is going to be a decline in, in what John Stewart has called the satirical industrial complex. Uh, I went up to New York a few weekends ago to see a, a panel in the New Yorker Festival that included Andy Brorowitz and Samantha Bee and some other people. And almost to a person, at least the sort of left, left liberal leaning satirical industrial complex, which I, I think is a redundancy. Remember when the half hour news show, they tried to have a daily show? I mean, there's just not a lot of humor on the right right now. Uh, and because the targets are not as good. Bush was uh, created an entire cottage industry for the people like Jon Stewart and the people like Tom Tomorrow cartoon and the people like Samantha Bee and the, and, and the satirist and the onion, which is seeing you know, record circulation. And to, almost to a person, uh, they are panicked about an Obama administration. They're afraid it's going to be not a, not a satire-free zone, but it's going to be a less target-rich environment, to quote one of the people in the story. Um, uh, Will Durst, who's a friend of, of our new editor of the UMBC uh, alumni magazine, uh, uh, Rich Byrne, 
uh, Rich put me in touch with Will Durst, the comedian, and he said, you know, I I'm a little bit worried. You know, I go to stand-up comedy clubs, and, and, and most of the people at stand-up comedy clubs are sort of, you know, even in red states, it's sort of the it's sort of the blue state crowd, and it's mostly a white crowd that comes to comedy clubs. And he's like, even I hesitate to sort of, you know, make a president homie joke. And he says, and until unless I can do that, it's going to be a less. It's just easier to pick on on George Bush, and it's going to be end to pick on Barack Obama. So I think, you know, sell sell long, sell short, you know, stock in the Daily Show and the Colbert Report right now because. You know, it's a Democratic Congress, and it's a, and it's an Obama administration. They're going to take them to task. They're going to they're going to mock them too, but um, they uh, all seem to agree that Obama's going to be harder to, to parody and satirize and pick fun of, uh, make fun of than uh, than George W. Bush. Although Tina Fey probably has a career ahead of her, assuming that Sarah yeah. Palin continues in politics. Although some people think Tina Fey in a real world, what does it really matter? I guess I haven't answered your question. Is some people think Tina Fey savaging a of, uh, of Sarah Palin may have helped uh, Ted Stevens in Alaska, it may have created this rally around Sarah Palin effect in Alaska that helped uh, down ballot in Ted Stevens and Don Young, two scandal-ridden Republicans in Congress who both, at least as of today, looks like are gonna hold on to their seats and it's a stunning surprise. We've got time, we've got time for one more question. Over here. I actually have two questions. <laughs> um, <laughs> Nicely played. Make them, make them quick. They're quick. Um, my first one, I think we all agree that Barack Obama's campaign was amazing, but besides technology, what other factors do you think made his campaign so successful? Money? Uh, well, I mean, the technological advantage was just, you know, t technology is a tactical advantage, but the strategic advantage was, was huge. I mean, this primary was won in the three weeks after the February 5th Super Tuesday when Barack Obama won 12 contests in 11 states and the Mariana Islands or whatever it was in Democrats abroad. There were 13 contests in the three weeks. It was only 17 days after basically a tied race on, on February 5th. Hillary Clinton uh, won fewer states, but she won the big states like California and New York, and Barack Obama won more states. But overall, like they basically split the vote on February 5th, and they came within 10 delegates, even though there were 2,000 delegates decided one day. It was like a difference of like 10 or 12 delegates. So it was a tie on February 5th. It was basically a tie before that in the four contests, which were New Hampshire, Iowa, South Carolina, and Nevada. She won two, he won two. And when did he win the race? He won it in those three weeks where he just ran the table. And he, why did he run the table? Because Hillary Clinton didn't have a field campaign after February 5th. She assumed that Barack Obama and the rest of the field would be done by that day. And Terry McAuliffe and the, and the Clinton people basically admitted this. They did not have a field operation in place in any of the states after February 5th. And that's why they just fell back into the Pennsylvanias and the Ohios and Texas, because they didn't have time. And so Barack Obama just cleaned your clock in the, in the Potomac primary year in Virginia, Maryland. And now, some of those states were demographically more favorable to him. I'll grant you that. But he even won you know, working class white votes in Wisconsin, which was the last of those states. And so that's when he won, because they had a plan B. And Hillary Clinton only had a plan A. When plan A didn't show up, she was out of it. And if you look at how her performance after those three weeks, she actually beat him from Wisconsin forward, only narrowly. But basically, they tied in, in, in the first quarter, which was the first four states. They tied in the second quarter, which was February 5th. And she slightly won the fourth quarter, and he killed her in the third quarter. And that's why he won. And he won because he was ready for a strategic fight, and she was ready for a coronation. And she, got, she didn't get what she thought was coming to her, literally. I, I think the other strength is uh, their ability to stay on message, and they never wavered fr from message. I think uh, it, it showed throughout the primaries, and it particularly showed in the general election. You saw Hillary Clinton, you know, all, all these campaigns have this arc uh, where the, the losing campaign, be it in the primaries or the general election, there's always a storyline where, well, you know, they, they finally hit upon it at the end, and if only they had, 
if only they had come upon that message earlier, they, they, they could have made gains. And that's always a sign of a campaign that's struggling to figure out what it's about. And, and Hillary, camp Hillary never figured out, I think, what her, what her candidacy was about. John McCain never figured out what his candidacy was about. I think the, the ability, and it stems from the candidate, it stems from the top, to stay on message was a tremendous strength of that campaign. Yeah, let me just add to that. Well, first of all, I mean, uh, I brought some copies of my books. If anybody wants them, I'll sign books afterwards. It's a shameless plug. Uh, but let me just add to what David said. David is, David is exactly right. I, I uh, went to the Manassas event. Did anybody go to the Manassas event the last night? It was just Monday night. There were 80,000 people, 43 miles south of Washington. People drove sometimes in traffic three hours, oftentimes had to park their car two, three miles away, walked another hour, 90 minutes to go to this event. Obama was scheduled to come out at 9, he comes out at 10.20. I've never seen anything like this. The St. Louis and the Denver events were bigger, but it was basically the same size. Grand Park obviously was a little bit bigger uh, in, in magnitude and, and in meaning. But after the event was over, David Oxford was standing there, so I went up to him because you know you rarely get a chance to talk to these guys. So when they're outside, you, you got to pounce on them like a dog on a meat truck, right? So I, I went up to Axelrod and I asked him, I said, what did you think about your closing message this week? And he says, the thing I like the most about our closing message, it's our opening message. We never changed our message the whole time. So all we had to do was just sort of amplify it at the end with the 30 minute thing and all that other stuff. He's like, we never left message, right? And that was just brilliant. And, and here's the other interesting thing about the strategic brilliance of their message. Their message was change and hope. Now whose message was that not too long ago in American politics? Right? No, no. Bill Clinton's message was change versus more than the same, and I still believe in a place called hope. They took Bill Clinton's message, Hillary Clinton, strategic error is that she had a perfectly good working model in her own family and didn't use it. Your second question, and that's all we've got time for. Okay, um, do you think that if John McCain didn't choose Sarah Palin as vice president? Tim Pawlenty, Tom Ridge, Joe Lieberman, Sarah Palin, and maybe throw one or two others on there. I mean, when you look at, the, when you look at his, his choices, he's gotta go with someone younger. Uh, it's hard, I guess it's hard to go with someone younger. <laughs> It's hard to go to this but he had to go with someone significantly younger uh, uh, because of his age and because of his, his health history. Uh, Tim Pawlenty, I think, has, uh, you know, could be considered a do-no-harm candidate but didn't have as much of an upside. Tom Ridge has issues with um, uh, the abortion issue, particularly among social conservatives, and Joe Lieberman would have would have alienated all these Republicans as someone who's a former Democrat. I think he, I think uh, the the bounce that they got out of Sarah Palin was probably nothing that they could have anticipated, and then it eroded over time because of her poor poor performances, particularly uh, with Katie Couric and some and some of her other comments. I think as as as. I'll get back to what he said about the environmental factors, all these things working that should have made it a democratic year. Uh, John McCain in this campaign went for Hail Mary passes a lot of the time, and some of them actually worked. And I think Sarah Palin was a, was a Hail Mary pass that kind of worked. And the tension between the two campaigns, the vice presidential campaign and the presidential campaign that you're seeing now, is because of the fact that this was a losing campaign and that, and that there is sniping and backbiting and career preservation that's gonna go on in losing campaigns. So I, I don't think it would have made much of a difference, and I think for a good while, two, three, four weeks, it actually helped him more than any other uh, candidate could have helped him. I agree. I think he would have been dead in the water without her, uh, and he was dead in the water with her. I mean, I, just the fundamentals <laughs> of the campaign were against him, and, uh, and she was an attempt. I mean, remember, they came out of the Republican convention after that laundry list of environmental and candidate effects, and they were ahead. That is a miracle. You could make the argument 
and, right? And, and this is why I say race had to have mattered, because you can't say our, Obama ran a poor campaign, right? So how does he only win by seven? I mean, I guess one alternative theory is that McCain, you, you want to argue that McCain won the campaign and lost the election, that he ran a better campaign? You can't make that argument. So that's why I keep coming back to race as a potential explanation for why Obama didn't win by 12 by 7. But you can say that I think McCain ran a pretty darn good campaign, given that he had almost no cards in his hand. None. He had almost no cards. And that whole attempt to sort of, as David pointed out, you know, to throw wild cards in and just try anything, because they knew that the steady train was due for arrival, and they had to try to do anything to shake it up and get it off the tracks. And, and at a couple points, they were successful. A couple times, every once in a while, you do complete a Hail Mary. And, but most of the times, they get dropped in the end zone, or you know, they go out of bounds. Let, let me um, take advantage of the fact that I've got the podium and, and have the kind of last, last comments here. Um, these are uh, exit polling data. Um, that, that were provided when I, when I did the Channel 13 thing on Tuesday night. Um, four in ten voters think Sarah Palin is qualified to be president if necessary. Um, Two-thirds think Joe Biden is. Um, most McCain supporters think Sarah Palin is qualified. That shouldn't be a surprise. Six in ten voters said that McCain's choice of Palin was a factor in their vote, including four in ten who described it as an important factor. Uh, one. They didn't ask, you know, factor for, for McCain or factor for, for Obama. It's not, not a very good question here. But the reality is, I think that in the last few weeks of the election, all the polling data showed that she was becoming a drag. How many points, it's hard to say. Um, and then the final point that I want to make about Vice President is that hardly anybody votes for the number two on the ticket. They may vote against the ticket because of the number two, but hardly anybody votes for number two on the ticket. In my lifetime, there's only been one time when a vice presidential choice has made any difference, any significant difference, and that was Lyndon Johnson in 1964 as vice presidential candidate. He carried Texas and a couple of other southern states. And you'll remember that John Kennedy was in Texas in November of, two, of, of, of 1963 to shore up support that he was losing, and if he'd lost Texas in 63, he wouldn't have been reelected. Turned out to be moot, of course. But so the vice presidential thing gets a lot of press, but I really don't think it has all that much impact uh, on the election. So I want to thank our panel panelists, David Nickett, Tom Shaw, and thank you all for coming.